We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Hear the word of God from Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb and saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. God, you can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we are all over the spectrum of belief as we come into this room this morning. Some of us are filled with a sense of hope and joy and belief uh, as we sing these songs and as we worship you. Uh, Some of us come filled with questions and doubts, and some of us come and we, this is our very first time in a Christian worship service, and uh, we still kind of can't believe that we're here. God, we are all over the map, and yet, in another sense, we're all in the same place. We are in need of your love and your grace and of a hope that you alone offer to us. And so would you give us minds to believe and hearts to receive all that you have for us today. Would you speak to us now in such a way that our lives would be changed? Thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you're not a God who has remained silent or detached, but you've come into this world and you've spoken through your son and through your word, and we ask now that you would speak to us by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Okay, all right. Good morning. Um, My name is Brent, and uh, I am one of the pastors here, and happy Easter to all of you. If you are, if you're new with us this morning, this is your first time uh, visiting our church, we are so glad that you're here and would love to get to greet you over a donut uh, after the service. Um, One of the things that I get to do as a minister is I get to officiate weddings, And I've done a lot of weddings, and I've seen a lot of strange things happen at weddings. I did one wedding where the bride passed out during the wedding. Um, 
She passed out three times, actually. Uh, and then she proceeded to throw up in the middle of the, the wedding. This is not a good start to a marriage, by the way. And uh, she proceeded to throw up into a bucket that I was asked to hold, actually, thinking, hey, I, I did not sign up for this, you know? Um, and if you, th- if you I- invite me to do your wedding and you start throwing up, I'm just telling you now, I'm not going to hold the bucket anymore. I have a very quick gag reflux. Um, I've seen a lot of strange things happen at weddings, but nothing as strange as what happened at actually my own wedding. Um, it was going pretty smoothly, meaning nobody was passing out, nobody was throwing up. And we got to the very end, which is the part where the minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And he went to say these words, and all of a sudden I heard my wife um, whisper to him, she said, she whispered under her breath, she said, you, you forgot the vows, you forgot to do the vows. And not only had he forgotten the vows, but I'd forgotten that he'd forgotten to do the vows, and everybody else had forgotten that he'd forgotten the vows. But my wife remembered, and then he looked at us and he said, you're right, I, I forgot the vows. And he started flipping through his little, you know, minister notebook that, uh, you know, people have when they do weddings. And he's flipping through it and he says, I forgot to print the vows. And, oh yeah, 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 just wait. And, uh, and so everybody's laughing, you know, kind of in this moment. But then he looks, there was another pastor that w- was co-officiating the wedding. We had two, two ministers and he, he turned to him and he said, did you did you bring the vows? And that guy said very quickly, out loud, so everybody could hear, no, that was your responsibility. (laughs) And see, you're laughing right now, but nobody was laughing at this point, especially my wife's parents, who are still not laughing about it, and they're probably watching online. Um, But uh, no vows. And so then he looks at us. What do you do? You know, he, he looks at us and he says, we don't have the vows and we're just gonna have to wing the vows. And you, wing is never a word you wanna hear, especially at your wedding, when it comes to the vows. But he did, and actually he, he, he did a pretty good job, he nailed it. So um, why am I telling you that story on Easter morning? I'm telling you that story because vows are to a marriage what the resurrection is to Christianity. No vows, no marriage. No resurrection, no Christianity. One of the things that I hear people in this city say often is, they say something like this, you know, I don't don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Um, But I do believe that Christianity has some really helpful things to say to us, you know, to say to us as a society about how we should treat other people, how we want to be treated, and how we should care for the poor, and how we should forgive people who wrong us. And I want you to know something, that if that's you this morning, if you would say, I don't really believe in the resurrection, but I think Christianity has some helpful things to say, um, you need to know that the New Testament itself actually disagrees with you. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. It says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Let Let me just translate that. If the resurrection didn't happen... Christianity is a joke. What we're doing this morning, it's a total waste of time. The resurrection is, it didn't happen. This is all a sham, and it changes nothing. But here's, here's the thing. 
The radical claim of Christianity is that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the grave and it changed everything. The world has never been the same since. We're still talking about it today, and not only are we talking about it today, but there are people gathered all over the world today who are worshiping him and who are singing to him, and he has more followers than any other religion in the history of the world. Why did the resurrection change everything that first Easter morning? And what I want to suggest to you, that's the question I want us to ask this morning, and what I want to suggest to you is that this passage tells us three reasons. It tells us that the resurrection changes everything because, number one, it is believable. Number two, it is personal. And number three, it is beautiful. It is believable, it's personal, and it's beautiful. So let's talk about each of these. First, it's believable, and some of you are thinking, well, how could you actually believe this actually happened? And uh, there is no way for me to do full justice to that question this morning. Um, I would encourage you, we've got this little book, uh, it's on our welcome table in this room behind the sanctuary, it's called Is Easter Unbelievable? It's by Rebecca McLaughlin, um, who uh, has this great little book, and she actually talks about this very question of, of why the, the historical veracity of the resurrection, why there's actually good reason to believe this actually happened. And what I want to do this morning, just very briefly, is I want to talk about, I want to address two common objections to the resurrection and try to make a case to you why it's actually believable. Um, here's the first objection. Objection number one is uh, people say, well, wait a minute, uh, the resurrection, this didn't happen because like we know dead people don't rise from the dead. Like that's not a thing, you know? And, but ancient people, they're more gullible and they would have believed this kind of stuff. You know, we are, we're modern people and we have science, but ancient people had superstition, so they're more likely to believe something like this could have actually happened. Now, the response to that is this, is that we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for about six months, if you've been around. And uh, if you've been around, you've noticed that in the Gospel of Mark, over and over and over again, Jesus keeps saying this one sentence. He keeps saying, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'll rise again. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'll rise again. Now, here we are at the third day, and Mark tells us that these three women who had been following Jesus come to the tomb. That means they've, they've heard Jesus say this, I'm, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I rise again. And you would think that when they get to the tomb and they see that it's empty, they would like start high-fiving and like, you know, praise God and let's sing a song or something. I don't know. Uh, but they're alarmed, actually, is what the text says. And, uh, and they don't come, notice this, they don't come to the tomb expecting Jesus to be alive. They come with burial spices to prepare his body for burial. And think about the disciples, you know. Where are the, the 11 disciples in this moment? Jesus has been saying over and over and over again, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Here we are the third day. I mean, you just would think one of them, they'd be, they're sitting around, can you imagine this? They're sitting around, and, and you would think one of them would be like, I don't know, guys, it's, it's the third day. Maybe we should, you guys want to go check it out? Maybe we should go take a look. Nobody is doing that. No one is expecting this. It was just as impossible for them to believe as it is for us, and, and I'll tell you why, because a lot has changed in 2,000 years, 
But one thing that has not changed is this. Dead people stay dead. That has like always been a thing for all of human history until this moment when a man named Jesus rose from the dead and people saw him and people who had no categories for someone, nobody had any sort of religious categories for a person actually rising in the middle of history. And they believe. Now here's the second objection. Second objection is uh, people say, we know these stories about the resurrection in the gospels, they're all just like myths and legends. It's, uh, it's first century news, <laughs> you know, first century fake news. You know, this, is, this was made up by the church and by uh, followers of Jesus after the fact to try to uh, promote their own religion, you know, and to get people to follow this thing. And there's actually a couple problems uh, with that. Two big ones. Here's the first one. The first problem is who Mark tells us is at the tomb first. He tells us that three women were there first. And all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell us that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were the first ones at the tomb. They were the first one. Amen. Amen. They were the first ones to say, they were the first ones to say, Jesus is risen. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because in the first century, women were of such low social status that their testimony was not admissible in court. Uh, there was a guy named Celsus who is a second century philosopher and, and critic of Christianity. And uh, one of his biggest objections to Christianity was that women were the first at the tomb. He said, you can't believe this. You can't believe the testimony of the women because, and this is what he said, I'm just quoting him, by the way. He said, all women are hysterical and therefore they can't be believed. And something tells me this guy did not have a lot of success in his romantic life. But uh, this was the prevailing worldview of the day. And you see, if you were trying to make something up, if you were coming up with a story to get a bunch of people on board and believe it, you never would have put women at the tomb first. It would have been, it would, it would have only uh, hurt your story. And what scholars and historians say is the only reason, the only reason to put women at the tomb first is because that's what actually happened. And that's why every gospel writer does it. And here's the second problem with saying this is made up is uh, think for just a moment about the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And this is an important, this is an important one because uh, some of you are thinking right now, you know, this, this reasoning is very circular. Uh, you know, the women and the fact that no one was expecting this. You're just using the Bible to prove the resurrection. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about history for just a moment. Uh, Mark tells us in verse 1 that one of the women there is Mary, and he says she's the mother of James. And here's what we know from history. We know that this James that Mark is talking about is Jesus' half-brother, and here's what else we know from history. We know that he was killed because he went around proclaiming that Jesus was the son of God and that he'd risen from the dead and that he had actually seen him. About his own brother. I mean, raise your hand if you have a brother in the room this morning. What would it take to convince you that your brother was the son of God? Some of you are like, my brother was like the son of Satan, you know, but the son of God? What would it take you to convince you of this? Here is what we know from history. We know that James, along with 
all of the disciples, along with countless people in the first century, went willingly to their deaths rather than recant. They said, you will have to throw us to the lions. Now, why would they do this? Does it make any sense to say that they would do this for something that they knew was made up, something they knew was a lie, something that was a myth, a legend? Or does it make more sense to say that they did this because on the third day, Jesus rose again, and they saw him, and they heard him, and they touched him, and therefore they could not deny him, and the news about him began to spread? And within 200 years, it had swept throughout the Roman Empire, and the world has never been the same. And here we are this morning. Hallelujah. You see, here's the point. There is one reason and one reason alone to believe in Christianity. And it is not because Christianity is personally fulfilling, which it is. And it is not because Christianity can bring meaning to your life, which it does. And it is not because it can actually give you resources for suffering, which it will. But there is one reason and one reason alone to believe in Christianity, and it is because it is true. It's because something actually happened in history. It's because it is believable. And if you've never considered that claim, I would really encourage you to pick up this little book, read it, and then let's have a conversation. That's my invitation to you today. I'll buy, okay? Coffee on me, lunch on me. At least get some free food out of this thing. All right, uh, that's point number one. The resurrection is believable. Here's, here's point number two. The resurrection changes everything because it's personal. Now, look what the angel says to the woman, to the women in verse seven. He says, but go, I love this. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. This is so personal. Peter's name gets mentioned by itself. And you see, why does the angel single out Peter? Think about the last time that we saw Peter in the Gospels. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, Peter was one of the 12 disciples and he was a key leader in Jesus' ministry. But the last time we saw Peter, we're in Mark chapter 16. The last time we saw Peter was in Mark chapter 14. He has just denied knowing Jesus three times. He has just betrayed Jesus. He is in hiding. He's watched Jesus be beaten. And then here's the last thing the Gospels tell us before this moment right here. is It says that Peter, he, he denied Jesus. And then it says he broke down and he wept. You know what that's called? That is called a moment of guilt and shame. I mean, imagine the guilt and shame that Peter felt in that moment in Mark chapter 14. Let me ask you a question. How do you deal with guilt and shame in your life? Some of us deal with it by saying, guilt and shame are religious constructs that are harmful to human psychology, and we need to do away with these things. But if that's how you deal with guilt and shame, have, let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed how all of us are actually looking for other people to tell us that we're okay? To tell us that we're, that we're enough? Um, every Sunday, when I go home from church, 
Um, at some point Sunday afternoon, I look at my wife and I say, so what do you think of this sermon? <laughs> my poor wife. We need to pray for my poor wife. Um, and let me tell you what's going on in that moment. Uh, there's a lot going on in that moment. That is not just me wanting to know that the sermon is okay. That is actually me wanting to know that I'm okay. That I'm enough. So that's me. Let's talk about you for just a moment. Okay? That's, I, go, I went first, but now let's talk about you. Why... Are, is there such power in the words of a boss who says, you got the job, or you got the promotion? Um, we got a lot of college students here this morning. Uh, when you got your acceptance letter into Berkeley, why did it give you such a sense of psychological validation? Like, you, you all went and you were like, I need to get some Berkeley swag and start wearing it. <laughs> So everybody knows where I'm going to school. Uh, why is it that when a lover first tells you, they, they say three words to you, I love you, like there is such a rush in that moment? And, and why is the opposite just as true? Why is there such heartache when someone tells you they no longer love you and want to be with you? Why is rejection so painful? Why is it that some of us in this room we had words spoken to us years and maybe even decades ago. A family member, a friend, a teacher, someone who, who, who said basically you will never amount to anything in life. And those words have marked us. We remember them like they're yesterday. They have seared themselves into our very souls. Why is it that we're all so affected by what other people think of us. I mean, listen, modern culture says it shouldn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. All that matters is what you think of you, but none of us actually live that way. And the reason is that because we all had this sense that we're not the people we want to be or that we're supposed to be, and so therefore we are looking for someone who can speak into our guilt and shame and actually tell us that we are okay and that we are enough and that we are loved. And you see, the question is, is there anyone who can actually speak those words into your life? And the answer to this text is yes. When the angel speaks to these women, we need to remember that in the Bible, angels are always God's messengers. That angels always say what God tells them to say. They're his spokespersons. And so when the angel, so that means that this is not the angel that is actually singling Peter out. No, no, this is Jesus singling Peter out. And what does Jesus have to say to Peter? He says, tell Peter that I'm going ahead of him in a Galilee, and there he will see me. This is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, I'm waiting on you. I'm eager to be with you. I'm eager to see you. I mean, can you imagine if, if the angel had just said to the women, tell the disciples to go into Galilee? Can you imagine if the angel had left Peter's name out? 
Peter probably been like, nah, I'm good. You guys go ahead. Let me know how it goes, you know. Things didn't end so well where things last picked up with Peter. And you see, Jesus singles Peter out because Peter's greatest challenge is not, is not having a sense of his guilt and shame. Peter's greatest challenge is knowing and believing that he is loved despite his guilt and shame. And if we are honest with ourselves, it is our greatest challenge too. That at the end of the day, every single one of us knows we are not the people we want to be. We fall short of even our own standards. And you see, how is it that Jesus can speak these words into Peter's life, knowing all that Peter has done? And even more importantly, how is it that Jesus can actually speak these words into your life and my life, knowing all that we've done and knowing the truth about who we are? And you know what the answer to that question is? The answer to that question is the resurrection. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says this, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Justification is the Bible's way of saying not only are we forgiven by God, but we are delighted in by God. It is the Bible's way of saying God does not just tolerate you, which is what most of us think. No, it is the Bible's way of saying God actually loves you. And Romans 4 says that that is possible because of the resurrection. And this is actually what makes Christianity utterly unique amongst world religions. Every other religion says God loves you because of what you do. You obey, you follow, follow the rules, obey the teaching, and God will accept you. Christianity says no. It says that God loves you not because of anything that you do, but because of everything that he has done for you in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, that means that the resurrection is not just a historical or intellectual truth to believe, but it means that it is about a love that we can personally receive. Every single person in this room that in the same way Jesus spoke into Peter's guilt and shame, he can speak into yours. And in the same way that he spoke into Peter's not okayness, he can speak into yours because the gospel tells us something far more wonderful than just that we are okay. It says that the creator of the heavens and the earth has affections for you that run wild. They run deep. They are unceasing. They never change. It says that God came into this world to live and to die and to rise again for you. And when that begins to sink into your life, it changes everything. Let me tell you, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I have seen this change countless people's lives. And it has been doing it for 2,000 years. And it changed Peter's life. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about Peter is that uh, Peter goes on to preach a number of sermons in the New Testament. You find most of them in the book of Acts. And then he actually goes on to write a couple books in the New Testament. But you will not find one occasion in the New Testament where Peter ever talks about his denial and betrayal of Jesus ever again. See, when you believe in the resurrection, 
Your guilt and shame do not define you. Jesus defines you. When you believe in the resurrection, your guilt and shame do not get the last word in your life. Jesus gets the last word, and it is a word of love and grace and mercy and redemption. It is so personal. It is so believable. And here's the last point why the resurrection changes everything. It's because it is beautiful. Um, I want you to notice in this text the very first words out of the angel's mouth to these women. It's in verse 6. And he says, don't be alarmed. The literal translation here is, do not be afraid. And I've been meditating on these words all week. Do not be afraid. This is the most repeated command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. The most repeated command in the Bible is not read your Bible, pray, go to church, do the right thing. The most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. It shows up more than any other command. Why does that command show up here at the resurrection? Well, if you walked into a dark tomb and there was an angel, you'd probably be a little afraid too. But there is more going on here. See, the reason this command shows up over and over and over again in the Bible and the reason it shows up again here at the resurrection is because God knows that we are fearful people. All of us in this room, no matter where you are on the spectrum of belief, convinced or unconvinced of the claims of Christianity, we are all fearful people. We live in fear of so many things. Some of us showed up to church today paralyzed by fear. We, we, we are afraid that we won't get the career that we want. We're afraid that we'll never have the financial stability that we want. We're afraid that we'll never be able to buy the house that we want, especially if we live here. <laughs> We're afraid. So this is why some of you are dreaming about moving back to the Midwest. We are afraid that we'll never get the spouse we want, that we'll never have the family that we want. We are afraid some of us are sick in this room this morning. There's deep physical sickness in our life, deep emotional sickness, psychological sickness in our life. We're afraid that we won't get the emotional or physical healing that we want. And of course, the big one is death. We're all afraid of death. And you see, this passage... There is such good news in the resurrection. Because what the resurrection says to you and me this morning is, you don't have to be afraid. Why not? Is it because God promises to give you everything that you want in this life? Is it because somehow, some way, at the end of the day, like the ball will always bounce the way you want it to? No. Friends, here's the truth. We live in a world where there is a lot of joy. Life has a lot of joy. And it has a lot of heartache.
a lot of brokenness, a lot of disappointment, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of injustice. See, but the resurrection means you do not have to be afraid because it says, though you may not get everything you want in this broken world, there is this beautiful world coming in the future where everything that you long for will come true. Everything that you desire will be fulfilled. One of my favorite accounts in the Gospels of the Resurrection is Luke's account. And in Luke chapter 24, the disciples, they meet Jesus. It's the first time they, they meet the risen Jesus. And Jesus shows up, they're in a room, and he says to them, he says, look at my hands and look at my feet. He says, I'm not a ghost, touch me. And he literally invites them to touch him. And then he says something that nobody's expecting. I guarantee you, he, this is, he says, he looks at them and he says, do you guys have anything to eat? Which is not expected. Uh, let me tell you, that, that little question, it is, it's, it is hilarious, but it is also hopeful. Because it is telling us something about the future that God promises to bring. It is telling us that just as Jesus was raised bodily, so will all who look to him and trust in him be raised bodily. It is telling us that the future that awaits us is not this spiritual disembodied future where we're kind of floating around in heaven, but it is this physical, material future. It is what the New Testament calls the new heavens and the new earth, where it says that God will one day restore this very world. The resurrection offers us this beautiful hope because it says that not only do shame and guilt not get the last word, but it says suffering will not have the last word. It says that sickness will not have the last word. It says that depression will not have the last word and loneliness will not have the last word and poverty will not have the last word. Racism will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Evil will not have the last word and death will not have the last word. This is the bigness of the Christian hope that Jesus has come to renew this world that one day all things will be made right, that one day we will live forever and ever and you will never have to say goodbye to people that you love. The reason that something in you says this is not the way things are supposed to be when you bury people is because it is not the way things are supposed to be. The resurrection says a day is coming where death will be no more and every desire of your heart will be fully met and we will sing and we will dance and we will laugh and we will eat forever in a world made new. I was watching this past week uh, a documentary that just came out on uh, Disney Plus. And um, it's a documentary about the band U2. I don't know if anybody's seen this yet. Um, but uh, David Letterman, who is kind of the famous uh, late night TV show host, goes with U2 uh, to Dublin, Ireland, which is their hometown, to watch them play some shows. And, and uh, at one point uh, in the documentary, David Letterman asked Bono, who's the lead singer of U2, some of you are like, U2, who's that band? You know, too young. Okay, anyways, I'm getting old. 
Uh, you didn't laugh at that. Okay, so I guess, I guess you agree with that. That's your way of agreeing with that. Um, uh, David Letterman asked Bono about the song Where the Streets Have No Name. And it's a song that's exactly what we're talking about right now, this, this great future hope that the resurrection promises to us of a world made new and a world made whole. And David Letterman says to Bono, tell me about that song. And Bono looks at him and he says, it's about this transcendent place that we can go to together. Do you want to come? If you're here this morning and you've never believed, this is God's question to you this morning. Do you want to come? Uh, I want to suggest to you that that's why you're here, that uh, you're, you're not here by accident, but maybe, just maybe, you're here because God has brought you here and he's inviting you into this great hope. Would you receive him? It's believable. This isn't wishful thinking. And for those of you who have believed, I just want to leave you with this today. There's something we need to see in this text. And it's that the angel says to these women, he says two things. He says, don't be afraid. What a great Easter thing to hold on to. And then he says, go. Go and tell the disciples. And what's really interesting is that every, in every gospel account of the resurrection, people are being told to go. They're being commanded to go, to go out into the world, into this broken present world, and to live in light of this beautiful future hope. It's what one historian calls the Easter effect. He says, when you look at history, when you go all the way back to the, the beginning of Christianity in the first century, that it was because of the resurrection that Christians became famous in their cities and in their towns for the way that they cared for the poor, for the way that they cared for those who were dying from the plagues when no one else would. That it was because of the resurrection that they were radically self-sacrificial with every part of their life. He says, when you look at history, this is what shaped the abolitionist movement in the late 18th century. And it is what birthed the civil rights movement in our own country. We are compelled to go. And it is what continues to compel us to go out into the world to fight against evil and injustice and to love our neighbor and to love our city. We are to be people of the resurrection. We are to be people who embody the good news of Easter in a bad news world. And it actually all starts right here at this table that we're about to come to. You see, before God commands us to go, he invites us to come, to come to him and to come to this table. This table says to you and me that we are enough, that we are okay, and that we are loved. And it tells us that not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. This, this table, friends, it's, 
It's not for good people. It's not for moral people. It's not for religious people. It's not for spiritual people. It is for people who have looked to Christ as their risen king, who has overcome sin and death, and who has given you and me a hope that changes everything. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The New Testament tells us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again and makes all things new. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this table, and we give you thanks for the resurrection that has made it possible for us to come, and we give you thanks for the love that is proclaimed over our lives at this table, and I pray for those in this room who have never known that love before, that this might be the day where they come to believe it and to receive it. And for others of us as we come, I pray that you would fill us, God, fill us with faith and with peace and with joy and with hope, things that only you can give to us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.